In September this year, two young girls were invited by Malala Yousafzai to tell their stories at the United Nations. Marie Claire, a refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Nalja, a Yazidi teen from Iraq, were selected as advocates for girls' education. In an impassioned speech, Marie Claire told of how she spent her childhood in and out of education, fleeing conflict, and how one night armed rebels broke into her house and murdered her mother. Conflict changed her life forever, but she refused to let it stand in the way of her getting the education she wanted. Sometime later, she became the first person in her family to graduate from high school, and she's now in university in the United States. The other girl speaking, Najla, a Yazidi girl from Iraq, was taken out of school at 14 to marry. But on her wedding day, she fled, in full wedding outfit, heels in hand, so that she could run faster, all because she didn't want to give up her dream of becoming a journalist. After settling in in a new town, she had to flee again when ISIS invaded her village and shot her in the process. Today, she lives in a concrete shell of a building in Kurdistan and walks over an hour to school. But she's happy to be free and in a classroom again. I'm now back in school and still determined to travel the world as a journalist, she told the world leaders gathered. I don't want any other girl to go through the same as me, she said. Not all of them can fight as hard as I did. Article 14, 1. Everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. 2. This right may not be invoked in the case of prosecutions genuinely arising from non-political crimes or from acts contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations. That's Eleanor Roosevelt reading from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights a document that was agreed upon in 1948 at the United Nations in Geneva by diplomats from around the world. The declaration recognized the right of people to seek asylum from persecution in other countries. In 1951, those rights were cemented in another treaty, the Convention Relating to the Status of Refugees. Initially limited to protecting European refugees from before 1951, the treaty was expanded in 1967 to remove all geographic and time restrictions. This convention mandated that countries treat refugees in the same way as their own citizens in several key areas, freedom to practice religion, public relief and assistance, but also a guarantee of elementary education. So at the time, the UN Secretariat wrote, and I quote, Elementary education satisfies an urgent need and schools are the most rapid and effective instrument of assimilation, end quote. By the turn of the millennium, the volume of refugees had increased around the world, but many countries were still falling short on their guarantee of elementary education for the displaced. Representatives from 180 countries around the world gathered in Dakar, Senegal at the World Education Forum to increase their commitments. Collectively, they pledged to, quote, ensure that by 2015, all children, particularly girls, children in difficult circumstances, and those belonging to ethnic minorities have access to and complete free and compulsory primary education of good quality, end quote.
Unfortunately, when 2015 rolled around, only a third of countries had met the goals that they had pledged in Dakar. In that same year, the UN set new targets for education as part of their sustainable development goals. But just two years later at that visit in September, Malala delivered a damning update on the prospect of those goals being reached. I cannot say that I am proud of the progress that we have seen in the last two years. We have big goals, but here is the truth. None of the SDGs, not a single one, can be accomplished unless we educate our girls. 130 million girls are out of school today. They're pushing back against poverty, war, and child marriage to go to school. The SDGs were a promise that we could fight with these girls. So far, we are failing. The question still remains of how to most effectively bring education, a key human right, to the displaced and to those in conflict zones around the world. In this episode, we'll be speaking to women who are trying to answer that question in innovative ways, from the software companies battling it out for Silicon Valley's 15 million Global Learning X Prize, to the low-tech approach to teacher training in Lebanon by a nonprofit backed by Syrian expats. This is Nevertheless, a podcast celebrating the women transforming teaching and learning through technology. Supported by Pearson Education and hosted by me, Lee Alexander. There's always a lot of creativity in how education is delivered. A school could be under a tree. It could be inside someone's home. It could be in a mosque or a church. It could be anywhere young people can gather safely with adults who can instruct them. That's Rebecca Winthrop, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and director of the Center for Universal Education. Winthrop, together with Eileen McGivney and Adam Barton, has authored a report that asks whether it's possible in developing countries to leapfrog, as they say, past traditional education methods into new and innovative ways of helping kids to learn. There are some great examples of innovative communities, innovative NGOs, innovative governments who are trying new approaches to delivering education services for very marginalized young people. And I can give you a couple of, of examples. There's an NGO in India called Pratham. Madhav Chavan and Rukmini Banerjee, who run Pratham, ask themselves whether kids in rural areas are really getting the skills they would need to survive and thrive in the future. Most of them are in school, they're getting basic literacy, but Chavan and Banerjee questioned whether this was enough. And they did an experiment. They bought a bunch of very sturdy little tablets, downloaded them with lots and lots of educational content that they had made from their decades of work in education in India. So it's local content in Hindi and English, video games, movies, little problems, interactive problems, lectures, etc., and they went to 400 communities and they said, look, you, your kids are in school. They should stay in school. But if they'd like to spend a little extra time, the kids who are at the upper elementary ages and middle school ages, we will give you these tablets. These tablets came with two conditions. 
The kids had to work together in a group on the tablet after school, and one adult has to be in charge of each tablet each night to charge it. That was it. No programming, no instructions, nothing. The kids self-organized. They began to develop their own little self-learning communities. Some of the little groups had decided that, you know, one kid would choose what they get to play on Monday, and another kid would choose Tuesday, etc. Some of them were taking inspiration from the things they were seeing and basically trying to copy with their own twist. They were making plays. They were making little episodes and drama. They were interviewing people. Just by having a chance to engage with high-quality content for extra hours offline in groups and in a self-directed way saw literacy and numeracy scores jump. There was a particular jump in their English. But that wasn't all. The NGO program officers who were visiting every week started noticing something else. Kids were asking more questions, were asking questions of their adults, were asking questions in class, and were basically learning digital literacy skills and collaboration skills and teamwork skills. Some of these softer, transferable or transversal skills that people uh, in the education community sometimes call them that are so key for their success in the future. Winthrop's work is centered on what she calls the rapid transformation of education, which means tackling the hundred-year gap between the education levels of rich children and poor children. In most countries around the world, even the rich ones, schools serve some children well and some very badly. The two twin problems I see globally in almost every country, not everyone, but almost every country, is the problem of making sure that today's education services are equally provided to all kids. So skills inequality is really about getting the best out of today's education for all kids. But at the same time, we do have to reorient most education delivery towards thinking about preparing kids for a world where the labor market is not static and Things will be changing quite rapidly based on the rapid pace of technology, automation, artificial intelligence, etc. And also the type of global social problems will be increasingly complex. So it's not just the world of work, it's also the type of challenges we're going to face in an increasingly interconnected, perhaps polarized world. There is no shortage of technology-oriented solutions to this problem. But in September 2014, Silicon Valley's XPRIZE Foundation joined the fight, launching the Global Learning XPRIZE. When I grow up, I want to be a doctor. When I grow up, I want to be a professor. Scientist. Designer. I want to help people. Teacher. Actress. Engineer. Basketball player. Turns out, kids dream big no matter where they're from. Unfortunately, where they're from makes a big difference of whether or not they'll ever realize those dreams. You're listening to XPRIZE chairman Peter Diamandis speaking on a launch video. You see, 250 million children from around the world cannot read, write, or do basic arithmetic. Many live in developing countries without regular access to schools or teachers, and it would take over one and a half million additional teachers to meet this unserved need. 
it's clear, this traditional approach will not scale. We simply cannot build enough schools or train enough teachers. But what if technology could help? The XPRIZE Foundation is offering a $15 million prize pool for entrepreneurs to create learning software, meaning apps, to teach people how to read, write, and do basic math. My name is Emily Musel Church. I work at the XPRIZE Foundation, and my primary project right now is the Global Learning XPRIZE. Since the launch of the Global Learning Prize, the foundation has chosen five finalists, U.S. entrants CCI, KitKat School and RoboTutor, India's Chimple and the UK's One Billion, each of whom will get a million dollars to develop their idea a little further. We spoke to Emily about how they narrowed down the field to their five finalists. We initially had um, about 700 teams who said they were interested in in competing. So to get down to five, we just in the beginning were thinking, how are we possibly going to have this? How is this going to be manageable? Uh, We have a really stellar judging panel. So there's an independent judging panel that works with us. They're internationals. They're around the world. We have neuroscientists. We have leading game designers. We have cultural experts. In the coming month, the ideas of these five finalists are going to be tested in the field. Each will be given a collection of pupils in rural Tanzania who will be tested before and after using the contestants' software. The one who has the highest learning gains between next month and the competition in early 2019 will get an additional $10 million. Um, so that'll be the, the total $15 million prize. I have to ask, what do they get to do with that money? They want to buy a yacht, they can buy a yacht. Um, most of them already have spent a lot of money doing this development work, hiring a staff. What investors are getting is people who are crowdsourcing all of these ideas. So even the people who didn't make those five finalists have put in so much time, work, ideas. Many of them are still out trying to get to market, working, getting funding. They're still doing their work. And there's really some incredible, incredible technology out there. So, of course, you might be thinking that optimizing for learning metrics and throwing money at problems, uh, that all sounds very Silicon Valley. Early on, Church admits that the prize had its fair share of doubters. So we did get some questions and criticisms in the beginning saying, who are you guys? Is this some Silicon Valley, you know, dropping tech and you want to go into Africa? Do you have any idea about any of this? Is this neocolonialism? I mean, all of the critiques, rightful critiques, I would say that somebody should ask. So how did Emily and her team answer those questions? One, making sure that it was in a language that the communities wanted um, and that made sense scientifically. And two, even more importantly, that we were constantly talking to people, that we were working with people from the community, parents, teachers, community leaders, village leaders, village council, district leaders, national leaders, um, you know, the government, international bodies, making sure we're really talking to people, explaining what the project is, and making sure people wanted us there. Church hopes that the eventual winner of the prize will be able to make a real difference in areas beyond these Tanzanian field trials. One of the things we're also looking at is trying to do some alternate field tests in other environments. Um, We're looking to do one in a refugee camp in Arabic. Um, We're looking to do one with our English language software. You know, we hope and assume this will work. Um, This technology will work. That's just the beginning. Then it is, how do we scale this and make this something that can be in any language anywhere and quickly? So if there's an emergency or just a basic need, that we will be able to quickly and easily get this into that context. And for people who are going to invite this technology into their communities, you can bet they're going to want to know what are the effects on my children, how is this going to affect family structure, all of those things. So we are really doing our best to 
outside of the competition, look at those elements to make sure that's a question that we can answer as best we can um, when we get our final results in early 2019. In addition, the foundation mandated that anything created should be designed for both girls and boys, as well as the advisory board featuring gender diversity. The foundation worked with its partners in Tanzania to ensure that there is gender equity there, too. And we also built in a part of the competition where there are village mamas or babas, but primarily a village mama for each of the 200 villages who is reporting back about what is happening in the village and who's sort of problem solving. The importance of role models who are women is really clear from the data. In Indian villages that have elected officials who are women, for example, there are more than 8% fewer girls who aspire to be housewives, almost 9% more girls who want to wait until they are 18 before getting married, and almost 9% more who want jobs that require formal schooling. Emily wants the X Prize to be an opportunity for voices who haven't been seen or heard before to be able to come forward and invent things that inspire girls. I'll give you a a personal anecdote actually from this weekend. I was with my daughter. We were reading a book. It was about a woman who created a flying machine, but they said, you know, oh, women can't compete. And, you know, I was reading the story with my daughter and and somebody, there was a um, a woman who took interest in Miss Todd and gave her a place to create and build these airplanes. And we happened to be sitting near a place where there's some napkins and paper plates. We finished the book. And my daughter sat there for a second and she ran over to the plates and I asked her what she was doing. She said, well, I'm building my own airplane. I can I can build an airplane, too. So what if you want to tackle this problem and you don't have a 15 million prize fund? I'm Fatima Dada. I'm the global managing director for Pearson's English and Schools Businesses. Fatima focuses specifically on technology and on bringing digital enhancement into the learning process and the learning experience. In that context, a lot of work is being done in countries ranging from China, Latin America, Brazil, South Africa, other African countries, as well as places like Canada, the UK, Australia, and Italy. We tend to have exchanges between the very technology-enhanced countries that have great infrastructure and great access to learning tools, and we try and bring those learnings to some of the emerging markets as well. But a trend that I've seen developing recently is taking the kind of frugal innovation that's taking place in places like India and Brazil and South Africa and taking it to the West as well. So that's really, uh, really quite exciting. Dada has been working with a Pearson team in India to see what can be done with a more affordable approach to learning. And the results so far are impressive. And we've been looking at how we can, in a very affordable way, develop a holistic learning experience. And in fact, it is a world-class model, which I haven't even seen effectively in some of the developed markets. For a really, really low price, it's something like $20 for the entire primary school curriculum for all subjects for a whole grade. We offer parent support through a parent app that helps parents with supervising their children's homework. We provide curriculum materials in print and in digital form to enhance the learning experience. So you'll find in rural India, in really low-cost private schools, children who don't have access to things like science labs would be able to view uh, science experiments in a live video and then go back to their learning content. We're also providing really great formative and summative assessments 
The summative assessments are digitally driven, so we're able to collect great data and we're able to provide personalized dashboards and reports for students and for teachers to be able to see where each of their students are at individually. Some have found that trying to implement technology brings problems of its own. We tried several times to uh, bring in technology into the classroom. It didn't work. Now that's Suha Tutunji, the academic director of an NGO called JUSUR. JUSUR runs an informal education program for Syrian refugees in Lebanon, aged between 5 and 14. We also do some courses uh, in English for our adults, the Syrians who are above 18. Uh, we work on psychosocial well-being of the students and the parents and the teachers. We do plenty of training for our teachers. And we try to also bring in some technology th- within our classes. She's found that working with refugees also means that conventional technological approaches don't work. One of the, the reasons why it didn't work is connectivity. Another reason is that uh, 90% of the teachers do not know how to use the, the computers. They are not IT uh, literate. Uh, And so uh, we would start, uh, you know, to talk about, you know, we can do the PowerPoint presentation or or a game on the video, and it didn't work out. Tatunji's numbers are supported by the research. A 2016 study found low levels of IT use in Lebanese classrooms, as well as barriers hindering improvement. To solve the problem, Jusor partnered with an NGO called Salam that works with teachers to create computer-based activities that fit into the lesson plan. The children go to these classes. They have a big mobile uh, lab, which is a bus that they've emptied inside and turned it into a computer lab. The children go onto the bus and they play games or they do some work on their computers that are related to the skills that they are learning in class with their teachers. I can give you an example of what happens. So let's say the teacher is doing addition. So the, the salam find activities that have to do with addition and they download them. The children sit in twos, each two on one uh, tablet, and they go through an activity on the computer that has addition. Like a frog, for example, maybe jumping on, uh, on lily leaves, jumping in twos or uh, something like that. Human Rights Watch noted in a 2016 report that the Lebanese government imposes substantial educational restrictions on Syrian refugees. In recent years, the government has withdrawn support for NGOs to provide anything but the most basic educational services to Syrian refugees, numeracy, literacy, and social studies. They don't have art, they don't have sports, they don't have music. That's it. They just go to school in the afternoon at around 3 They do some math, English, social studies, and then they leave school at around half past six. But they do play a crucial role in keeping kids, particularly girls, in school, trying to prevent them from being married off at a young age. And they do this by speaking directly to the parents. Oh, it's it's a bit tricky. We, we, we try to tell them, you know, look at your situation now. You're in Lebanon. And if you have had an education, most of the parents are not educated. Do you, you, know, you would have had a better future or you wouldn't have had the conditions you're at now. Maybe you'd have found a better job and you provided better for your for your uh, children uh, but we work mainly on on the mothers because the mothers have lived through being married at an early age and how difficult it was for them to raise children we focus on these on this point with the mothers and most 
of the time, the mother said, no, say, no, we don't want our, our, our children, our girls to live the same life we lived. And they work on, on convincing the fathers. But one of the biggest hurdles that many organizations face when confronting the challenge of educating refugees is finding enough trained teachers. In sub-Saharan Africa, the average number of pupils per teacher is 42, and that's a figure that has barely changed since the turn of the millennium. The solutions are not easily forthcoming either. A 2014 report in The Guardian found that some developing countries rapidly increased their teacher numbers and lowered their pupil-teacher ratios by simply hiring people without training. Others have simply lowered the entry requirements. Either way, trained teachers are in short supply in both developing and developed countries, and employing untrained or poorly trained teachers harms the quality of education. That's why it's notable that the biggest successes that USOR has found have been in training teachers rather than students. I mean, they have come a long way, the teachers, because in Syria they were used to the traditional form of teaching, teacher-centered, rote learning, and now I can see the difference. It is dramatic, it's phenomenal. The way they first started and how they teach now. Activities, including the children in group work, getting them to think critically, solve problems. Teachers, tell, they always tell me, you know, when we go back to Syria, we will never go back to teaching in the same way we, we, we were taught or we were asked to teach. We are going to use all these new methods that we're, we're learning because they're fun, they're interesting, and we feel that the children are really learning this way. So I think this is fabulous. By working so closely with educators and children, the innovators we've spoken to are finding genuine solutions to urgent problems. They're playing their part in helping girls like Marie-Claire and Najla fulfill their potential and pursue their dreams. And while all the women we've spoken to in this episode are deserving of attention, Suha would rather save the praise for someone else. The teachers uh, are, the, are the forgotten soldiers. They are... Refugees themselves, they've gone through a hard time. Some of them live in tents as well because they can't afford to rent small uh, apartments. And yet they still have to stand there in front of the children and put up a strong face and be, be good role models and show the children that everything's, no, you know, life as usual. Look at us. We're doing well. And, and you can do that as well. They are the true heroes, in my opinion. Nevertheless is a Story Things production. Writing and editing by the team at Story Things. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer. Executive producer Nathan Martin. Supported by Pearson Education and with this episode presented by me, Lee Alexander. For show notes, go to nevertheless podcast.com. <laughs>